welcome to the Day Health Strategies podcast, Unlocking Accountable Care, Conversations on Healthcare Reform. This podcast features experts in the field talking about the most salient issues in healthcare reform. Welcome to another episode of Unlocking Accountable Care. I'm your host, Emily George, and today we have with us Jim Tate. Jim Tate is the Chief Product Officer at Medivisum Telehealth Solutions based in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. He has overseen large-scale implementations of electronic health systems in various hospitals and healthcare institutions across the United States and Asia. Jim is also a fellow podcast host of a show called The Tate Chronicles, where he discusses technological advances in healthcare. Welcome to the show, Jim. Emily, glad to be here, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk with you some today. My pleasure. So I'm excited to dig a little bit more into your current work at Medivisum, but before we get started, Jim, can you tell us a little bit about your career journey and how it led you to your current position? Sure, Emily. Uh, Glad to. Uh, My initial background is clinical. Uh, in another lifetime, I was a respiratory therapist uh, uh, and then got involved in hospital cardiopulmonary labs, pulmonary functions and arterial blood gas analysis, uh, that, that type of work. Uh, and then I entered the ambulatory space. I was a clinical director of a large pulmonary practice in Asheville, North Carolina, about 15 pulmonologists. Uh, and, oh, maybe about uh, 10 or 15 years ago, saw the potential of the electronic medical record systems that were being rolled out, uh, where I know a couple of generations passed what was being rolled out back then, but uh, the, the potential to have that electronic data uh, in a way that was uh, useful, uh, but also did not interfere with the provider and patient relationship, I just thought that would be an amazing area to work in. So I got involved with the implementation of EHRs and practice management systems, did quite a few of those in the U.S., uh, did some in, um, in China also. Uh, saw the need uh, for these health information technology vendors uh, to uh, r- really uh, be able to gain some insight in on the clinical side, provider side, to help them design those systems. So I founded EMR Advocate, and uh, in the last 15 years, we've worked with over 300 of those health information technology vendors on design and functionality and their certification initiatives. Uh, the Meaningful Use Program came along and I was a subject matter expert to the federal government designing best practices and um, authoring lessons learned for the regional extension centers. Uh, more recently, in the last two or three years, I've gotten involved with the development of what's uh, known as blockchain, uh, and the potential for blockchain technology to address some of the still unsolved issues around healthcare interoperability. That's going to be a, that whole thing around interoperability is going to be a tough knot to to untie. Uh, So I've always been interested in the actual healthcare delivery side, but also the technological side of the healthcare delivery. And, and so, of course, uh, with the giant explosion, maybe not in the functionality of telehealth, but because that technology has been around for a few years, but the sudden and overwhelming need for it, uh, 
that's when I got involved with Medivice um, uh, as a telehealth solution. So kind of started on the clinical side and then went to the technical side and uh, kind of merged together now, trying to make sure that the high tech kind of balances out with the high touch needs of, of human healthcare delivery. Oh, wow. That is so fascinating and extremely relevant, you know, as more and more healthcare delivery systems are utilizing and leveraging technology in new ways. Um, I, I, I'm curious just to hear your thoughts a little bit on, on our current COVID-19 pandemic. And um, as, as you know, and everybody intimately knows, our, our, healthcare, our healthcare system has endured a tremendous shock over the last few months. Um, and, and many healthcare providers who were not directly providing care to COVID-19 patients had to rapidly make this shift to providing um, telehealth services or really shift to these digital platforms. Um, so do you foresee these changes as being permanent or reactionary? What will go? What well, will stay? Well, um, you know, Emily, uh, you put the right word on it when you say shock, because mm -hmm. this was like an earthquake. Uh, literally, in over a one or two week period, hospitals that were doing elective surgeries stopped doing elective surgeries. Mm -hmm. and, and literally, decades of uh, business models for clinics and hospitals uh, uh, had to be reinvented. And even the, and the, the financial implications to hospitals and, and practices uh, and, and to their underlying business models um, is you know, a once in a lifetime event, maybe not even once in a lifetime, do uh, those healthcare entities have to deal with a, such a sudden shock like that, just really out of the blue, nobody could predicted, have predicted uh, the, the suddenness uh, of that occurring and, and how deeply it was gonna uh, cut in to just basic use cases. And so, uh, of course, we had uh, the federal government declare a healthcare emergency, and as part of that emergency, was the uh, several things that really uh, expanded the immediate use of telehealth. First, let me take a step back. When we think of telehealth, uh, in, in the last few months, we think of well, a patient can't come into the office anymore, so there'll be some type of audio-visual communication with them over computers or smartphones or something like that. Um, actually, that's one type of, of telehealth. We, uh, the, uh, To my way of thinking, there's three categories. The first is what is co commonly called store and forward. Uh, and this is the when clinical information is collected, such things as weight and radiographic images and patient-generated data, and, and then it's sent for evaluation and analysis. Uh, and then you have remote monitoring. Uh, uh, remote monitoring is such a large area and so critical for chronic healthcare management. And this is has to do with maybe health data coming from uh, electronic devices in someone's homes, uh, pulse oximetry for oxygen saturation levels, blood sugar analysis, peak flow meters for asthma, cardiac monitoring, all those things where the data uh, can either on a regular basis or continual basis be, be streamed into a software system that is uh, uh, configured with alerts and things like that. Uh, and then the third type is the type that we 
really are thinking more about now, that's that real-time interaction. And that's the uh, an, an attempt to recreate the in-office visit between a patient and a provider. Uh, those are clinical encounters, annual wellness visits, home health uh, visits can be included in that, uh, different types of screening, uh, review of diagnostics. So um, the area to, to me that's been the most affected uh, by this has been that real-time interaction. And when the public health emergency uh, was declared by the federal government not too long ago, March 13th is when it happened, uh, three major things took place. One was the immediate relaxation of HIPAA regulations so that non-HIPAA secure devices uh, and software platforms could be used to conduct, conduct these uh, real-time interactions between patients and and uh, and their providers, uh, and so uh, immediately such platforms as uh, FaceTime uh, were allowed to be used and are still allowed to be used because of the relaxation of, of HIPAA. Um, and so uh, a, a number of these platforms that are out there, Zoom's another one, that were never <clears throat> intended to be used for clinical documentation and HIPAA uh, standard requirements uh, were allowed to be used and, and, and are being used. Um, and so we, we have that out there um, just because there was such urgency. So basically the federal government said, HHS said, anything you want to use, use it for now. We don't know when that public health emergency is going to be uh, canceled. Um, but then uh, maybe even larger, what stimulated this was CMS and many of the third-party insurance companies for the first time offered reimbursement on parity for telehealth with face-to-face -face encounters. Uh, and as far as Medicaid, these, this parity varies somewhat on a state-by-state basis. But, but one thing that held telehealth back for so long was the reimbursement levels were considerably lower than what could be paid a provider for a face-to-face -face encounter. Uh, so they're just a business models that kept a practice afloat uh, and other entities afloat was suddenly uh, viable uh, uh, to, to use the new technology. So, uh, and, and then the third thing to me that is an attempt to really stimulate the use of telehealth during the emergency is the uh, Federal Communications Corporation, FCC, cranked out uh, a telehealth program, uh, and that was $200 million in funding to help healthcare providers provide telehealth services. Now, uh, it, it's an accelerated program. It's eligible for providers in underserved areas or who are very focused on COVID or uh, in, in certain rural areas. Um, and the applications are really expedited and pretty quickly money is given out. Uh, this is money that it doesn't have to be paid back. These are just really out and out grants. And so um, a, a lot of money was, or is still being distributed to those organizations. So we got regulatory things going on, financial stimulation things going on, and certainly the uh, parity with face-to-face uh, -face, uh, visits, all of those uh, really have uh, triggered this giant expansion. And um, 
the open question I hear people talk about all the time, Emily, is, well, what will happen when the emergency is over? Well, um, I believe that the um, uh, certainly the HIPAA, relaxation of HIPAA, is going to be tightened back up, as it should be, because HIPAA is a uh, time-tested and, and true uh, level of uh, security uh, standards to protect our health information. You know, one thing about HIPAA I'm always fascinated by is that it, it falls underneath the Department of Civil Rights. Uh, it's considered a civil right that your health information is private. So that's going to be tightened back up. What will be interesting to see is uh, whether the reimbursement for many of these um, uh, new uh, telehealth applications or, or, or functionalities or encounters, uh, if, if, if the reimbursement is going to be rolled back on those. And I think what, what that's going to be based on the data uh, going forward. And there certainly is a push for a lot of those encounters to remain, to remain that higher level of reimbursement. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wow. It's so helpful how you sort of bucketed all of these into, you know, the regulatory, the financial stimulations, the parity. Um, Jim, are, do you think there are more changes that you anticipate that, that we'll see coming down in the next few months? Well, um, uh, um, you know, uh, certainly not. Uh, I don't see anything uh, uh, that's going to be in the next couple of months because, you know, with COVID, we're learning as we go. And all this is a response to the COVID emergency. Uh, you know, uh, on a weekly basis, we all are learning new things about the spread of this disease. And, you know, after we saw what happened in New York and, and Washington State, we thought, well, there's just going to be this terrible wave one, and then it's going to pull back, and then we're worried about a wave two, and 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 now we're we're in uh, late June, and we're really not even out of wave one. So you know, we're kind of at a plateau that seems to be uh, inching back up. So um, I, I don't see that there's going to be any relaxation or removal of the. Uh, elevated reimbursements anytime soon. Uh, so I think it's going to continue uh, as, as it is for some time. Uh, one thing that um, I, I sh maybe should have mentioned earlier, uh, the, these business models, um, there's been reimbursement, uh, uh, parity reimbursement in some areas, but not in all areas. And I'll, get, I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the most common uh, diseases in this country is sleep apnea. And so typically it's diagnosed with a overnight sleep study uh, in uh, a hospital or a sleep clinic that, that's set up and, you know, wired up and uh, monitored to gather all, all the information. And um, with the emergency and the cancellation of everything elective, nobody was, is going in for, uh, quote, I guess, in-house sleep studies. And so those businesses were kind of like the restaurants. They went from whatever their revenue was reduced maybe 90% overnight. Uh, and so there is the ability with te technology to do home sleep studies, but the reimbursement um, is still for that. It was, has never been increased. It's about one-fourth uh, for a home sleep study 
using telemedicine as it is for uh, in a uh, in a laboratory or in a hospital. Now the sleep states are not exactly the same, so there is a little variation there. But it just shows one area in which uh, telehealth could potentially be used, but the reimbursement is uh, has not been raised up. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and such areas, uh, not only reimbursement has been affected, but uh, the ability of many of the home health uh, visits, uh, hospice uh, visits, uh, renal disease visits, required certification, recertification, quite a few of those that required an in-person visit. You know, for home health during this crisis, <laughs> people who need home health are by definition at a high risk group, they don't need anybody coming into their house and they don't need to be going anywhere else. So uh, obviously some of the home health uh, uh, certifications and requirements um, have been uh, uh, loosened up quite a bit, you know, so, so there's been reason for that. So um, I, I think uh, what certainly CMS and HHS and uh, many of the third party uh, entities have done uh, to, to work so quickly to change things uh, has really been, uh, uh, I've never seen anything like it <laughs> in my healthcare career because I remember um, uh, typically these things involve a, uh, a preliminary rule and then public comment and then an interim final rule, <laughs> public comment. And then it can take a year, year and a half to get things done. In two or three weeks, uh, you know, these rules and regulations uh, came down. So uh, it's um, uh, also really fascinating to me how quickly, especially uh, private practices, which had never done telehealth, in two or three weeks were searching for products. Uh, they didn't have time to do the, uh, maybe the in-depth due diligence to select which telehealth pr- products that they chose, but they figured out how to use them pretty quickly. They had to. Uh, for not only financial reasons, but just to deliver healthcare. So, um, you know, that, that could have taken months, not years. In a couple of weeks, people were figuring that out, as well as many of the patients had to figure out, <laughs> you know, when uh, they they would uh, click on a link on their smartphone, mm-hmm. and the smartphone would ask them, can we have permission to use your microphone and camera? You know, the first time somebody asks you that, your phone asks you that, you think, well, I don't know why. But... And so there's been a giant learning curve, and we're over that learning curve now. So it, it was done really, really quickly. I know. It was quite impressive. And you, I, I, I can't um, agree with you more when you said, I've never seen anything like it. You know, who knew that we would be able to move that quickly um, <laughs> with passing a lot of the, the policy, especially around it and the reimbursement? All of that was just incredibly um, impressive and remarkable. Um, I'm curious, you know, are there are there other ways that you think people could be leveraging the strengths of digital health and technology during this time that you haven't mentioned? Um, well, I, I think the fact that we have gotten more comfortable uh, with it, uh, you know, maybe five to ten years ago, we first saw uh, uh, practices and hospitals having patient portals. Uh, and there was kind of a slow uptake uh, because uh, patients were kind of used to all of us going into a room with a provider and telling them that our toe hurt and they tell us what we needed to do. 
And so it was uh, kind of a uh, dynamic that uh, uh, with the introduction of portals, the concept of patient engagement. Uh, and so the idea of uh, portal use and now uh, telehealth use, and by telehealth, I don't mean during an actual encounter, but if a patient, uh, let's say, has diabetes and uh, or congestive heart failure, needs report their their daily weight or their daily or every four hour blood sugar levels, uh, as a way to uh, input that into uh, a website, and, and that information flows to their primary care physician. I think if, as people have gotten a little more comfortable with the telehealth, then that uh, patient generated data will be a, um, a smaller bite of the apple than, mm-hmm. than, than, than would have been. So, you know, this really spurs that whole thing of, you know, that we've talked about for years, patient engagement, where they're certainly more involved. And, uh, and I, guess, I guess if there is uh, a, any silver lining, it may be that the promotion of the technology, which was on the shelf and ready to be pulled off the shelf, but also the kind of cultural and social shift of patient uh, engagement. And, uh, you know, we used to just used to go into a lab, get our blood drawn, and the doctor would tell, it, tell us what it was. Well, now with devices, we can actually be generating, especially if you have chronic diseases, generating that data and, and having it flow uh, to a provider for review or analysis or uh, to go up against set uh, clinical decision support systems that will uh, alert somebody if, if they, something needs to be alerted. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, go ahead. Oh, Sorry. no, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was uh, going to say, um, uh, moving forward, um, I think one thing that may happen is um, there may be uh, a shift in uh, a deeper foundation in the telehealth platforms that are used by practices. Again, when the HIPAA relaxations are, are ended, uh, some of those platforms that are not HIPAA required, that are not don't meet HIPAA requirements, are, are going to be off the table and, and can't be used. And many of these uh, social interaction platforms were not designed by healthcare uh, teams for healthcare providers. They don't. They're really not based on uh, gathering and documenting clinical uh, information. So uh, I think there'll, there'll probably be uh, a, a shift in that going forward. I would think such that, of course, HIPAA compliance is a big a big deal. Uh, some some of these platforms that physicians uh, have picked up uh, re- require a patient to download an app and uh, to their smartphone. Well, you know that's that, that can be technologically uh, difficult for somebody especially if they're older. Um, uh, there's got to be uh, an easy way for patients to schedule these encounters. You know, a provider can schedule them. But a patient, just like uh, now in some of the portals we use, patients can go in and schedule a visit and see open slots. Yeah, that needs to be that capability for those telehealth uh, uh, visits. Uh, of course, telehealth is not good for an initial visit or if there's some severe episodic condition going on. But if it's just a checkup or, or, or if a uh, patient has a rash and wants to know if it's scabies versus poison ivy, 
the ability to do a telehealth thing and 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 have an image taken of that uh, area uh, of their body so the provider can include it in their chart. You know, th- that's important, the file transfer. Um, and even such things as to have multiple participants in the session. Right now, we've got two on this call. It's you and me, Emily. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we're doing audio, but we could be doing video audio if you wanted to. But if you're a provider and I was an elderly patient, it might be helpful if my adult son who's in Timbuktu could join the, join the session and help answer some questions. So you have multiple participants in there, screen share, file exchange, and you want some kind of documentation and counter report. So uh, I think people will be shipped, providers will be shipped over to uh, more mature um, platforms for telehealth. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that that's um, a great segue into my last question, and you've answered part of it, but um, I'm just curious, you know, Jim, with your current work and the way that you're thinking about this, what's next for you? What, what's next in your work? What, what are you thinking about um, just for the upcoming months? Well, uh, uh, thanks for that question, Emily, and, and for the time today. Um, that's really go- a good question. I, I'm, uh, you know, I don't know who said it. I don't know if it was John Kennedy or William Shakespeare, but but somebody said uh, uh, sometimes uh, people rise to greatness, and sometimes they have greatness thrust upon upon them. Mm-hmm. And we're in a situation where telehealth has been thrust uh, uh, upon us, and so I've always been. Uh, really interesting, fascinated by the interplay between, again, you know, patients and providers and technology. Uh, and, and so I think the technology uh, is not going to replace a lot. Uh, it's going to be a new tool uh, uh, that, that can be used. And in, in appropriate situations, it's incredibly useful and really helps, uh, you know, uh, healthcare disparity, you know, because of geographic reasons or or whatever reason, kind of help address some of those things. Um, but I'm becoming more and more uh, interested um, in the remote patient monitoring. Uh, the fact that, that, that we can track uh, people with chronic diseases uh, electronically and, and make sure that there can be interventions uh, before they need to be hospitalized or if, if, if they're fragile asthmatic, you know, that we get a two or three day early warning so they can be started on inhalers or, or whatever. So uh, that early intervention that can be created by uh, telehealth platforms to me is an area I'm really fascinated in right now. Mm. Wow. Well, Jim, thank you so much just for sharing your insights with us and for being on the show. And we look forward to hearing more about your work in the future. Emily, thanks for inviting me today. Always glad to talk to you. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Day Health Strategies podcast, Unlocking Accountable Care, Conversations on Healthcare Reform. Day Health Strategies is a Boston-based, mission-driven healthcare consulting firm specializing in providing timely and effective solutions to complex problems in healthcare. To learn more about our work, please visit our website at www.dayhealthstrategies.com or follow us on Twitter at dayhealthstrat. Just a reminder, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policies or positions of Day Health Strategies. 
Our producer and host is Emily George. Editing is done by Kate Gautung. Special thanks to Purple Planet for the use of their songs.